0: You're listening to the Sunday Morning Sermon from First Baptist Church Seminole, Oklahoma. Good morning. Uh, My name is Scott Robinson. I'm one of your elder pastors here at Seminole First Baptist, and so glad you're here this morning, especially if it's your first time being with us. We want to get to know you better. I'm going to be doing the responsive reading this morning. It's from the Baptist Hymnal on page 672. You'll read the congregation, you'll read the bold print. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Who alone does great wonders? Who by his understanding made the heavens? Who spread out the earth upon the waters? Who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon, and starts to govern the night? His love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies, and who, gave fo- and who gives food to every creature? Give thanks to the God of heaven, His love endures forever. Amen. You may be seated.
1: This time our children, just dis- pre-K through second grade, are dismissed to children's worship. Jam, and Jesus and me worship for the children. Again, it is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I trust the Lord has been very kind to you already today as we have sung songs to the Lord and to one another. I had this thought as I was sitting down here today, it's a thought that comes to me multiple times a month as the occasion provides itself on a Sunday morning during our time of singing, that Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19 tells us that we are to sing hymns and spiritual songs of praise to one another, that there is a something supernaturally spiritual happening as we sing songs to one another. And I believe that nothing that I have seen with my own eyes might give an illustration or a demonstration, if you will, to what is really happening when we sing songs to one another than the demonstration, the spiritual demonstration of American sign language. When you see two people facing off, Singing to one another through sign language, face to face, heart to heart, spirit to spirit, it is deeply encouraging and it brings to the surface that very passage of Ephesians chapter 5. So I thank the Lord for those opportunities that He gives us to see His grace at work in the lives of His fellowship. I call your attention this morning to Joshua in chapter 9. Joshua and chapter 9, and normally I would give you some verses that we're going to read out of Joshua and chapter 9, but we are in Joshua chapter 9, the whole chapter. I don't think I've ever done this before. Rob's done it. I don't think I've ever done this before. Tried to give you one message out of an entire chapter, but with the Lord's help, we're going to do it this morning. Amen? Okay. This is one story. It's one fluid story of the Gibeonites, not Gideonites, Gibeonites, that we're going to read today. What we have learned thus far in the book of Joshua, and we will see this today, the book might be best summarized as a cosmic spiritual battle, a spiritual conflict that is played out and portrayed through a physical conflict, a physical conflict battle. We have talked about how the the book of Joshua is both a historical narrative and a prophetic foreshadowing of the person of Christ and his ultimate victories. But as the physical battles play out and the physical war is engaged throughout the book of Joshua, what we see is the reminder to us that there is this spiritual warfare, this Spiritual conflict being played out between the Lord and his rebellious enemies. We have to be reminded of that. We are told throughout the Holy Scriptures of this great cosmic spiritual conflict. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul reminds the church at Ephesus in this For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there is a spiritual battle that's at place. It may work itself out, like in the book of Joshua, in the flesh, but it's a spiritual war. Now this means something for us this morning on two levels, And by the way, I don't know if you figured this out, I'm kind of preaching in reverse this morning. We're going to get to our passage here in a minute, but I wanted to lay some exposition first before the passage. It's not normal for me, so bear with me. But this means something at, at two levels for us today. The first is that all around you, every day of your life, on every corner of God's creation, there is a war. This is a war being waged... Over that which is eternal. The war is between, like I said, God and the forces of evil that have rebelled against him. Now, I've told you before, maybe it's been a while, and maybe some of you weren't even here when I've told this illustration before, of a pastor friend of mine who was preaching not far from here uh, at a revival of sorts, a multiple night preaching event at a church. Each night as he preached, he noticed in the back of the sanctuary a young man who wasn't sitting with the youth, wasn't sitting with the college students, kind of sitting off on his own in the back with his head down the entire time he preached, drawing, drawing each night. After a few nights of this, Ed made his way after one of the services to meet this young man. And as he met this young man, he was... He had come face to face with this reality that this young man had a pretty firm case, a pretty strong uh, case of um, Asperger's or autism. And so he sat in the back and in his own capacity to try to understand what was happening in his environment, seeing things as he saw things, the best way he knew to engage in that situation was to draw. And so Ed asked him, can I see what you have drawn? And so he showed Ed what he was drawing. To Ed's surprise, what he saw was really literally what was right in front of him. The back of the heads of a whole bunch of people in a sanctuary. There was the stage. There was Ed preaching on the stage. Just as plain as anybody might see that. But on this drawing was something that is not so plain. Something that the normal person may not take note of, for above the congregation were angels and demons fighting. And Ed said to the young man, is this what you see while I'm preaching? And he said, yes, every time. What glorious insight that the Lord would give to those that might be outcast by some people. To see the beautiful picture of what is really happening as God's people gather under the preached and taught word of the Lord. That there is a spiritual war happening. And everywhere we go, every day, that spiritual war is being waged. What a gift from God that He would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what is really happening. So that's the first level of what's happening. Every day, everywhere, there's a cosmic spiritual battle being waged. The second level of this reality is that not only is there a cosmic spiritual battle being waged, and you and I, but it is that you and I are in the very middle of that cosmic battle. Just like the Israelites were in the physical battle that they were, was taking place through the Canaanite land, uh, and just as we're going to read the Gibeonites, we're right in the middle of that, so you and I are every day the focal point of that spiritual battle. Evil is fighting for your soul. Angels are fighting and interceding for your soul. The army of the Lord is a spiritual army just as much as it is a physical army. And that war is happening every day over the lives and souls of the inhabitants of the world of which you and I are. That war is being waged in your life and your co-workers' lives, in your life and your neighbors' lives, in your life and the rest of your family's lives, in your life and the other students you sit with in classes' lives. It's happening everywhere and it is impacting people. That spiritual war is a war that we cannot escape. There's no escaping the cosmic spiritual battle. There is no hiding from God and His war. And there is no excuse that will suffice in the end when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ our Lord. For we are also reminded in Scripture that at the judgment of Christ, which we've already preached through in Joshua that there will be those who have tried to disguise themselves during the war only to find out the disguise may have fooled their neighbors, may have fooled their family, may have fooled their classmates and may have fooled their co-worker but it didn't fool the Lord. Matthew chapter 25 is such a Bone-chilling reality of what will happen in the end. What will happen when the Lord comes back to judge the living and the dead. In Matthew chapter 25, again we haven't even read our primary text yet because we're doing this in reverse. In Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31, Matthew records for us this. When the Son of Man comes, this is Jesus speaking. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will gather before Him and He will separate them one from another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on His right, come, You are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Now depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you didn't take care of me. Then they will also say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison or, or not help you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into, the eternal, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now some have looked at Matthew 25 and they have said, well, that's the difference in people who go to church and people who don't go to church. Nope, Jesus is talking to Christians. He's talking to those who are his disciples. This is the gospel of Matthew. It's at the end. He is talking to the people that are gathered, that are following him. When he says, what you did to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, he's talking about people who claim to follow Jesus. And believe this, church, just because you come to church every now and then or own a Bible or say spiritual things from time to time or even say to yourself, I know Jesus, and I love Jesus, but I don't know the things of Jesus. I don't obey the things that he has said. I don't really follow him, but I know him. You know, I've got this loose idea of him. I'm all good. I'm all covered. Guess what? When all those people who claim to know Jesus are gathered before Jesus one day, he's going to say, some of you did know me, and some of you did not know me. You were disguising yourselves because you invoked my name from time to time. Go away from me to a place that's prepared for you. There is a spiritual war at place, and there are people who understand that, and they follow Jesus, they obey Jesus, they do everything the Lord has commanded them, they make it their life's pursuit to walk and be formed by Christ. And then there are those who sometimes gather in rooms like this week in and week out, and they own things like this and week in and week out they see it. They don't pick it up and read it, but they see it. Or from time to time they claim it around the right group of people. I love Jesus, I know Jesus. Just that and they're in disguise. They're in disguise. And that's really what we're going to read about today. Is a group of people who are in disguise. We know how that works out in the end. We know what the New Testament teaches us about those who truly follow Christ and falsely follow Christ, but what about God's sovereign grace in the big picture of what God is doing and what God is establishing with His holy people as they seek to take the land that God has promised them by a covenant relationship with them. He has said, I will give you this. I make that promise. I will see it. Through that sovereign God, that God of all authority, that God of all grace, that God of all giving, what does it mean when a particular story plays out that is quite confusing and quite comical, as we will see? So again, you might be saying, Nick, this sure seems like you're doing this in reverse, and I did But it is important for us to understand the cosmic framework, the spiritual, eternal battle that is taking place. So that when we read Joshua chapter 9, we'll understand that as God is in the work of unfolding this story, you've got different types of people being represented in this story. Some understand what's going on, some don't. But what is God's aim? What is God wanting to accomplish In Joshua chapter 9. So would you stand with me as we honor the Lord at the reading of his word? Joshua chapter 9. When all the kings heard about Jericho and Ai, those who were west of the Jordan in the hill country, in the Judean foothills, and along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, they formed a unified alliance to fight against Joshua and Israel. When the inhabitants of of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done in Jericho and Ai, they acted deceptively. They gathered provisions and took worn-out sackcloths on their donkeys and wineskins and cracked and mended. They wore old patched sandals on their feet and threadbare clothing on their bodies. Their entire provision of bread was dry and crumbly they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant land. Please make a treaty with us. The men of Israel replied to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. How can we make a treaty with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua asked them, who are you and where did you come from? They replied to him, your servants have come from a faraway land because the reputation of the Lord your God We have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two Amorite kings beyond the Jordan, King Sihon of Heshbon and King Og of Bashan, who was in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our land told us, take provisions with you for the journey. Go meet them and say, we are your servants and meet them and greet them and make a treaty with them. This bread of ours was warm when we took it from our houses, and the food on the day we left has, has come to you, but see, it is now dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, but see, they are cracked, and these clothes and sandals uh, of ours are worn out from the extremely long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of the, their provisions and did not seek the Lord's decision. So Joshua established peace with them and made a treaty to let them live. And the leaders of the community swore an oath to them. Three days after making this treaty with them, they heard that the Gibeonites were their neighbors living among them. So the Israelites set out and reached the Gibeonite cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, uh, Sephrah, Baroth, and kiroth Jerem. But these Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the community had sworn an oath by them to the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole community grumbled against the leaders. All the leaders answered them, We have sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them. This is how we will treat them. We will let them live so that no wrath will fall on us because of the oath that we swore to them. So they also said, Let them live. So the Gibeonites became woodcutters and water carriers and for the whole community as the leaders had promised them. Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said to them, Why did you deceive us by telling us you live far from us when in fact you are among us? Therefore, you are cursed and will always be slaves, woodcutters, and water carriers for the house of my God. The Gibeonites answered them, It was clearly communicated to your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give, to give you all the land and destroy the inhabitants of the land before you. We greatly feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. Now we are in your hands. Do to us whatever you think is right. So this is what Joshua did to them. He rescued them from the Israelites and did not kill them. And on that day, he made them woodcutters and water carriers, as they are today, for the community for the, of the Lord's altar at the place he would choose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we love you and trust you. May your word today and may this story that, is, that has unfolded to teach us something encourage us deeply today. It's in Christ we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, the title of this morning's message, we're halfway through it already, is something about a coalition or an oath and a counterfeit, a deception. Now I want you to notice something that right out of the gate we have one of those contrasts that we talk about all the time in Scripture. And we talk about how Scripture is full of contrasts and those contrasts teach us a deep theology or a doctrine about God. And right here in verse 1... When all the kings heard about Jericho and Ai, meaning the victories, the squashing of Jericho and the squashing of Ai, when all the other kings between the mountain range and the Mediterranean Sea, when they heard about this, they gathered their forces together. Six nations decide to come together and fight against Israel. Now this is interesting because it's in stark contrast to what happens in Joshua chapter 5 verse 1. Remember the grand story about how the Israelites crossed the Jordan and all that God did to get them across the Jordan, which was a miracle of itself. It was a massive grace of God and power of God that got them across the Jordan. And then in Jericho, they hear about this. They hear about what the Lord had done to get them across the Jordan. And what does it say the kings of Jericho did? And all the people... They got scared, they got humble, they got fearful, they lost courage, it says. Remember, Rahab even says to them, to the two spies who come in camp to see what's going on, she says to them, everybody's trembling, everybody's panicked, because they know the God of Israel is coming. That's in stark contrast to what happens here in chapter 9, verse 1. Why does this matter? It matters because we have talked about this, about how geography in the Bible is theology in the Bible. So all of the inhabitants with their kings spreading six different people groups from the hill country, I'm, going, I'm, I'm seeing this way, from the hill country uh, from your perspective on this side of Jerusalem all the way to the Mediterranean Sea on this side down even into the footlands that separate them everybody who lives in this region who's heard about what's happened in these two victories already they go i think if we get together we can beat them if we join forces we can attack israel now that's all the inhabitants with the exception of the gibeonites This is why geography matters when you're looking through the Old Testament because if you can imagine, okay, let's just say that everybody from Oklahoma to California decides we're going to join forces against a present, what we consider to be a present evil in us, something that's going to come and take away all of our rights, something that's going to end us. In the 80s, we thought that was Russia, right? In the 80s, we were joined forces because we thought Russia was going to invade, and we were all on the same page. We weren't going to let Russia invade, right? But just imagine a picture like that from Oklahoma to California. Everybody's on the same page except for Seminole. Seminole goes, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. I think they're going to squash us. I think they're going to wipe the floor with us. So I think we ought to do something different and in every group there's that one guy there's that one guy he's probably like you know he's the one Gibeonite that that probably leads the community theater he's the drama you know director he's the one who writes the plays that happen in the town square of Gibeon and he says you know what I I have an idea (laughs) let's just play this out instead of going to war that we know we're gonna lose how about we put on a play how about we act apart? How about we put on a disguise for the Israelites? I mean, that ought to work, right? And everybody just kind of moves in on this guy, and he's like, well, what do you got for us? I mean, how are we going to disguise ourselves? And he's like, you know you know all this stuff we got that's rotting? Let's pretend like that stuff is fresh, Let's pretend like that stuff is fresh right now. We'll load all of that stuff up, the wine skins, We'll load up the, the moldy bread. Uh, we'll gather all that stuff up, but we'll make our clothes look awful, all right? We'll dry our skin out and all that kind of stuff. We'll take this really short, six-mile, six-mile journey, a third of the way to Shawnee. We'll take this six-mile journey to Gilgal where all of Joshua and his leaders and, the, and, the, and everybody's camped out, we'll go to them, okay? And, and, and we'll tell them that we've come from a long ways off. And this is just, oh, we've been traveling and traveling and traveling because we're not your neighbors. We're not your neighbors. Now, why is that so important? Geography is theology. Why is that so important? Because if you go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, God made a covenant with Israel and it's leaders. And he said to them, people from a distant land, not the land I'm giving you, but people from a distant land, far off, way on the outskirts of where I've given you. Those people, you are allowed to make provisional treaties with them. You don't have to kill them if you don't think you need to kill them. They know that. They know just enough about God to be dangerous. They know just enough about God to put themselves in in disguise and so God has given this freedom to his leaders to say if they come from a distant land you can offer a provisional safety for them and they do that so the disguise works if they had come to them and said hey we just live down the road but we don't want you to destroy us and wipe us out they would say that's, up, that's the Lord's work The Lord has told us, we have to wipe all this area out. We have to make this place holy. We have to wipe out rebellion in this area. And no provision for you. But because they come in this disguise from a distant land, the Lord has told them, you can make a provision for them. And they make a provision for them. They did not seek the Lord on this. But the covenant that the Lord gave them, they invoke it. And they make a promise to them. And so, it worked. It worked. I want you to notice something very specific about this, though. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but in the 1950s, they made an archaeological discovery and they found what is today known as the city of Gibeon. And as they were digging and and did this archeological, all these findings, they found in jars and in containers, all these Hebrew words of the Gibeonite people. And so we know this is a real place that still exists today. In fact, they, they dug up, I think I have a picture of it, they dug up what's called the Pool of Gibeon. The Pool of Gibeon is mentioned several other times in scripture. I only bring this out because geography is really neat in the Old Testament. So this is a really deep pool that has 74 stairs that go down it and they circle and there's a battle mentioned in second, this is just kind of a cool fun fact, there's a battle mentioned in Second Samuel chapter 2 where 12 warriors for David and 12 warriors for uh, an enemy uh, kingdom come and they meet here and David sends his 12 soldiers down and the other kingdom sends their 12 soldiers down and this is how they fight. You want to hear how they fight? This is how they fight. They get close they lean in over to over the pool to one another they grab each other by the head and they fight with swords that's how they fought so imagine you're one of those 12 soldiers and this is what you get to do you get to go walk down some stairs in a deep pit and you get to lean over to somebody else grab their hair and with your sword in hand you get to stab them in the ribs this stuff happened this is the kind of battle that happened Gibeon is a city that is mentioned multiple times in the scriptures as if God is saying, don't forget about Gibeon. Don't forget that at one time, these people came. These people had interaction with the house of God, and they will again in the future. And by the way, we're not too far off from hearing about how the Lord will actually physically save them again. Geography matters because geography is theology, this is not the only encounter that Israel will have with the Gibeonites in the land of Gibeon. But I want you to notice something really significant about what is said in verse 3. It says, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they acted a Arum. Arum is a Hebrew word. A R U M. They acted arum. Means with craftiness. They acted as crafty people. Does anybody know where else the word, the Hebrew word arum is used? Genesis chapter 3. It's the same Hebrew word with the same Hebrew meaning. And the serpent came and acted with arum. It's the same wickedness, the same deception, the same craftiness. The Gibeonites came this way because they did not want Israel to end them. Look at what they've already done, they say to one another. We really like living. We would like nothing more than to not die. And so we must be crafty about this. We must act with wickedness. We must go and be a rum. And so here we learn something about people and about the devil. People really want to live. They don't want to die. And Satan, as David Jackham says, if he cannot knock down the front door and ransack the heart then he will slip by in a side entrance in order to compromise God's people in their fulfillment of God's will. If you can't bust down the door and say, here I am, I'm Satan, you want to come follow me? If you can't can't accomplish that, he's going to be a rum. What we also know about the Gibeonites must be something about the Lord's covenant with his people. Again, back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, we read of this allowment, this coalition that is allowed to exist between God's people, their leaders are allowed to make these oaths, these these confessions, these basically human to human covenants in the name of the Lord. And so they do that. So what we learn is that this is a story of deception. And flattery. So that they don't just come around. They don't just come with craftiness before God's people to earn this oath, if you will. They also come with flattery. So they first come and they say, we're from a far off country. Deception. Then they say, we're your humble servants. That's flattery. And those are two things that Satan uses. Deception and flattery. We've talked about flattery before. Leaders love flattery. Leaders love to be told how great they are. Leaders love to know that there's people who will serve at their feet. and Deceptive people who come with a rum, they know this too. And so they offer those two things, deception and flattery. One theologian comically says that this deception only works because they don't live in the days of Google Maps can you imagine people trying to come to you today and saying, hey, we're from a distant, far-off land. Let me see your driver's license. You're from Shawnee. That's not a distant, far-off land. Get out of here. We're about to kill you. It only works in this time. They don't have a map to pull out of their back pocket and go, oh, Gibeon, six miles. Ah, sorry, you don't, you're not distant. You're not fooling anyone. And the more that I read this story, I read this I read chapter 9 probably 30 times this week. I found the deep theological truths in it to be convicting and encouraging, but I also found the, just the amount of humor that's here. If you didn't know any better, you would think that the same writers for the Monty Python scripts were the ones that scripted this. A bunch of guys sitting around, well, how can we deceive them? Let's take the moldy bread and have them try it. I can just see that being played out in a script and people laughing at this, right? And we almost have to look at this and go, they're not just deceptive, they're comedians. There's no way. They're probably thinking if we're going to die, let's at least die in a comedy play, right? You have to laugh at some of this. But under the laughter and under the drama and under the theater of all this is the reality that these Gibeonites... They know who the Lord is, and they know what the Lord has come to do. Not only do they know who the Lord is and know what the Lord has come to do, they know what the word of the Lord says, for they even invoke the words of the Torah before Joshua. This This is also interesting. So they get caught, right? Three days later, they find out. Now nah, you guys are from Shawnee, what happened? Why did you do that? Why did you, why did you come to us and deceive us and then we've made an oath? And we have to keep that oath because that oath comes in the name of the Lord. So we have to keep this oath, but why did you do that? And they said, well, we knew what you were gonna do. We knew of the Lord, we knew of his plans. We know what his word says and we just wanted to live. We just wanted to be spared. And we knew that if we could get you to make an oath with us, we knew you would have to spare our lives. And Joshua's like, I mean, come on, get out of here with that, right? And look at what they say to Joshua in verse 25. They say, now we are in your hands. Do with us whatever you think is right. They invoke the Hebrew words, good and good and right, which come from the covenant of God that He made with Israel, that they are to live in ways that are good and right. That they are to serve out the Lord's will as good and right. They are the ambassadors of what is good and what is right under the covenant of God. And they use this phrase in the Israelite community in this nation all the time we must do what is good and right the Gibeonites know this and they say to them you do just as the Lord has told you to do in your eyes what do you think is good and right in other words what do you think the Lord would do in this situation since you come to make an oath in his name now we've, we all have children who do this same thing right that moment when your children are just old enough to practice a rum, right? They get caught doing something and they come to you and they're so sorry. They're so pitiful, right? They got the fake tears going. They got the, the, the shaky lip. They got the hands put together. And the hands always go from being put together, you know, oh, mom, dad, I know. What I did was wrong. And I did it for this reason, though. It was a really good reason that I did this, mom or dad. I've got a really pure heart. I just want to live. And then they moved to holding their hands out. But, you know, all authority has been given to you, mom and dad. My heart is broken over my own sin, but you do what is right. Right? You do what you think is good. As if we're going to go, oh, man, you're, you're, go, go play. You're good. You're all good. Go play. By the way, some parents do that. Some parents buy that. I've never bought that. I always come with a swift act of discipline. What are you laughing for? But this is what they're, This is essentially what's happening. It's like a child before a father who doesn't want to be in any further trouble, but he's invoking, you're a good parent. You're a right parent, and your justice will see that I get mercy, right? Your justice will see that I get grace in this situation. I mean, look at my tears and look at my posture. They're not wrong. The Gibeonites are not wrong here, because the covenant that the leaders make with the Gibeonites is the same as the Lord making a covenant with the Gibeonites, because the Lord has already said this is how it works, you're my people, you're my leaders, if you give an oath to someone You stand by it. You know why? Because when the Lord gives an oath, when the Lord gives a promise, when the Lord makes a covenant, he stands by it. His reputation is at stake. And Joshua knows that. Joshua knows that because of the oath and because of the covenant with God and because of the permission and grace and mercy of God, he has to uphold this oath because it is a picture of God's grace. Did you know that that's what this story is about? It's a picture of God's sovereign grace? We might read this story and go, that is hogwash. There is no reason to forgive this act of deception. There is no reason for them to allow them to live. They should go back on the oath and they should wipe them out like they're going to wipe out everybody else. But they cannot because God's grace found in His covenant, God's grace found in His promises, is God's grace found in His covenant. And God's grace found in His promises. And they cannot Bring shame upon the name of the Lord. It's a fascinating picture of God's sovereignty and God's grace. And the bottom line is this. Through this story, and we could camp out on Joshua chapter 9, there are so many theological points to be made here. We could camp out for a long time, but for today, what we have is a people who are desperate to see their lives spared. They do not want to die. They know how to save their lives. Get an oath from God's people. Let us rest on this thought today. God's covenant, God's promises are of His grace. This is a story of God's grace being lived out by God's people. And where does the rubber hit the road for us? What theological implication do we have for us today as New Testament Believers in Jesus Christ, it is this: Do you take God's grace for granted? Are we that much different from the Gibeonites? You made an oath, Lord. It happened in, on June 23rd of 1996. At Falls Creek, in an old, stinky cabin surrounded by a bunch of stinky teenagers, of which I was one. You made an oath. You made a promise. Your word says that if I call out to you, you will save me. And so I called out to you, and you saved me. And now I can live however I want, because once you made that promise, you can't take it back. And so I'll just do whatever I want to do. I can disobey. I can live deceitfully. I can make false claims. I can cheat, I can steal, I can do whatever I want because God's grace always surpasses my own sin. Are we really that different from the Gibeon? What a dangerous game to play with the Lord. Remember Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. And what about Romans chapter 6? When the Apostle Paul writes to Christians spread out through the Roman Empire, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Well, what shall we say then? He's talking about Christians. He's talking to people who claim to follow Christ. He says, Well, what shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning because grace abounds? Well, absolutely not, the Apostle Paul says. We were saved from sin so that we will not sin anymore. Do you take God's grace for granted? And when you stand before Him someday, will He expose you for your deception? Will He expose you For your disguise. Do you want to play that game with the Lord? A game of disguise. Do you want to sit in pews Sunday after Sunday? Do you want to wear Christian t-shirts and go to Christian events? Just so you have just enough Jesus that you're spared. Just enough Jesus that you can come into the family of God... Now, you may be the water carrier, you may be the woodcutter, but at least your life has been spared. Do you want to play that type of spiritual game with the Lord, that you would take His grace for granted? I hope not. I hope not. At the end of the day, the reality of this passage is that verse 9, and we'll close on this, verse 9 is probably the key verse of the entire chapter, and it says this, They replied to him, Your servants have come from far away, from a faraway land, because of the reputation of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. Do you know that the Hebrew literally translates like this? We have come to the name of the Lord your God. We have come from a faraway place to the name of the Lord your God. When they look at the people of God, they see the name of the Lord their God. And when they seek to be saved and seek refuge, they come to the name of the Lord their God. That's probably the key passage. Those who would like nothing more than to not die must come to the name of the Lord. They sought refuge and salvation in disguise. They sought refuge and salvation in the name of the Lord. They have a high level of knowledge of God and yet a high level of ignorance about the way that it works. But they come to the name of the Lord and they trust that if they can get a promise from God's people, they're getting a promise from God. They weren't wrong. They just did it the wrong way. One theologian says this, about all of Joshua chapter nine. It brings great glory to God when the overwhelming arrogance of evil is temporarily allowed to demonstrate itself in what turns out to be its own destruction. That is what divine sovereignty is all about. If you're asking me to make sense of the way the Lord has made a covenant with Israel and how Israel is sparing the lives of the Gibeonites, who deceived them in disguise. If you're asking me to make sense of that, I cannot. I can summarize it like this. The Lord makes covenants, and those covenants are birthed in the foundation of His grace and His mercy. And where the Lord has poured out His covenant, He's poured out His grace, and He will not go back on His word. And so for his name and for his glory, he allows this to happen. The Gibeonites are saved because they came to the name of the Lord. But the question is, how then shall we live? As Francis Schaeffer has always said, how then shall we live? As the people of God, shall we live under the same disguise day in and day out? Or shall we shed that disguise and sin no more? The Apostle Paul says, it's because of his grace that you shall sin no more. You are not to walk in disguise, but you are to walk in the grace of the Lord in obedience to the Lord. Interesting chapter. Interesting group of people, the Gibeonites are. Interesting story, nonetheless. Still a story about God's divine sovereignty. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you stand with me as we move into a time of worship? A time of reflection? An honest look at our own lives? An honest look at our pursuit in the faith, whether that is genuine or in disguise? But an absolute assurance of knowledge knowing that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, we love you. We trust you. We ask that you be so kind to us today. We ask that your mercy continue to be so evident with us today. And we ask that your grace would abound. Yes. Each and every day that your grace would abound as you keep us and secure us from sin. Not so that we can sin. but so that we would not sin. And that God, above all, would we be a people who not only stand on the foundation of your Son, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our salvation, the cornerstone of the church, the cornerstone of our faith, would we rest in His saving grace? Would we repent of our sins and trust Him and Him alone as our salvation? We love you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray and all of God's people said.